the reading will be for the whole of the weeks that uh, Chris will be doing the theme on the name of God. God has a name, rather. And it's taken from Exodus chapter 34, verse 4 to 8. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and he went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord has commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to hunger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Praise God. Please be with Chris as he comes to bring your word to us today. Help us to open our eyes, ears, and hearts to you and what he has to say to each one of us. Through your Holy Spirit, move each of us on, and may we all reach towards the red leaf today. We ask this all in your precious name. Amen. Now, we're starting a new series, and I'm really excited about this series. And it's based on a book uh, called God Has a Name. Just going to, no, that way. God Has a Name uh, by John Mark Comer. He's an American guy, American preacher, teacher from Portland, Oregon. But don't hold that against him, okay? Um, And basically what I'm going to do over the course of the next five or six weeks is give you the English translation of this book. That's basically what's going to happen. Um, But no, it's a wonderful book. He's done a number of other books. Some of you have read his latest, which is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. You can see Annabelle elbowing someone next to her. Oh, I've read that book. That's a very good book too, but we're going to be looking at this. And he has a wonderful opener in this book, and I just thought I've got to share it. I'm going to dip into this book a few times uh, this morning, but I thought this was such a good opener that I thought, why not start with this? So he says this, last week, an atheist came up to me and asked how I could believe in a God who made parents eat their children. Okay, here we go. Naturally, I was a little confused. A lot of people have odd ideas about God, but cannibalism? Well, that was new. I was speaking at an event, and the theme that weekend was the Bible. And the event was supposed to be for pastors and church leaders, but a number of atheists atheists had crashed the party. It turns out a lot of people have issues with the Bible. But even more of us have issues with God. So this guy, we'll call him Micah, 
comes up to me with a quote from Leviticus. Why is it always Leviticus? He had accidentally torn a line out of context and misread it. It happens. We had a nice chat about how God isn't actually a cannibal, and then I had to go up on stage and teach. But it struck me later that Micah, the atheist, and myself, the pastor, were both talking about God. But the two of us had radically different ideas about who God is. So, how do you picture God? That's the question we're going to be exploring over the course of the next few weeks. How do you picture God? Hopefully, you don't picture God like Micah does. That would be a bit worrying. If you do, speak to me afterwards. I would like to talk with you. (laughs) But what comes to mind when you think about God? How would you describe God to someone? If one of your friends who doesn't come to church and says they don't believe, but asks you a genuine question like, how would you describe God? What's God about? How would you describe God? What would you say? Now, there was a time in this nation that when you mentioned God, people would immediately think of the God they saw in the Bible and in Jesus and heard about in church. But this is not the norm anymore. We live in a post-Christendom nation where a lot of our Christian heritage has been rejected and increasingly just forgotten. Today, when I say God, you may get any number of answers, depending on your country of birth, your culture, your religion, your education, or, more interestingly, what you watch on TV or online particularly online these days. And all of this leads to the heart of this book and the heart of this preaching series, which is, who is God? Is God a he or a she or a they or an it? Is God a person or is he, she, they, it more like an energy, more like a force at play or a state of mind? Or is God just an outdated concept that we've outgrown now that we have advanced in science and technology and know better. But let's assume for a moment there is a God. What is this God like? Are they kind? Are they cruel? Close by and intimately involved? Or far off and aloof? Strict and uptight like a fundamental preacher? Or are they free and easygoing like a good, educated progressive? Does God vote Labour or Conservative? Or does he vote Green Party? Or how about this one? Is God even good for the world anymore? Fewer and fewer people answer yes. What if God and religion are just an endless source of violence, hatred, bigotry, hypocrisy... And bad music. Who is this God? We love, hate, worship, blaspheme, trust, fear, believe, doubt, bow to, makes jokes about, and most of the time, ignore. 
The 20th century writer A.W. Tozer made a stunning claim. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about that? Do you agree? The most important thing? More important than our relationship status, or our job, or our family of origin, our gender, our sexuality, our ethnicity, our education, our political views, or the way we spread our scone or our scone? Yeah, that's what Toes is saying. More important than them. He went on to say that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God, whether we are aware of it or not. And he says, were we able to extract from any person a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. That's some big stuff to consider on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Whoa. In other words, how you picture God matters hugely, and it will shape your life accordingly. Or put another way, who God is has profound implications on who you are. Last week, we looked briefly at the creation account in Genesis and the fact that God made us humanity in his image and how revolutionary that was, how he made us just a little lower than the angels. Some translations say just a little lower than God himself and gave us, crowned us with authority and power to rule and create just as he did. But as the saying goes, and you may have heard this one before, God created man in his own image. And then man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. So I just want to read another section from the book. This is from page 26. And I found this really interesting. John Mark Comer says this. My friend, Scott McKnight, got to love that name, is a New Testament professor in Chicago. For years, he taught a class on Jesus, and he would start every semester with two surveys. The first was a set of questions about the student, what they like, dislike, believe, and so on. The second was the same set of questions, but this time about Jesus. He told me that 90% of the time, the answers were exactly the same. How interesting is that? And he said, he goes on to say, here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're labor, so is he. If you're conservative, he is too. If you're passionate about 
such and such, then he's passionate about such and such. If you're open and elastic about various topics, so is he. And above all, he's tame. He never, you never get mad at him or blown away by him or scared of him because he's controllable. And of course, he's a figment of your imagination. Often what we believe about God says more about us than it does about God. Our theology is like a mirror to the soul. It shows us what's deep inside. Maybe the truth is that we want, to, we want a God who is controllable because we want to be God. We want to be the authority on who God is or who God is not and what's wrong and right. But we want the mask of religion or spirituality to cover up the I want to be God reality. The most ancient primal temptation going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden is to decide for ourselves what God is like and whether we should live into his vision of human flourishing or come up with our own. This is why theology is so incredibly important. And the word theology and we've heard some Greek words today, so here's a few more. The word theology comes from two Greek words, theo, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. Simply put, theology is a word about God. It's what comes to mind when we think about God. It's not like some of us are into theology and others aren't. We all have a theology. We all have thoughts and opinions and convictions about God. Good, bad, right, wrong, brilliant, dangerous. We all theologize. But the truth is, we are not the authority on God. God is. If we want to know who God is, what he's like, what he's about, then we need to go to the source, which is God himself. We need revelation. Otherwise, what we end up with is a real pick-and-mix bag of ideas about God. Some are good, some are bad, some are true, some are very untrue, and sometimes some are just plain toxic. And all of this leads to Moses, on top of a mountain where God reveals who he is. And we're going to spend the next few weeks dissecting this revelation and pulling the curtain back on it. But firstly, I just want to take a step back. For me, as I hope you know, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I don't think you'd have employed me otherwise, would you? Um, and my understanding of God comes primarily through the revelation I see in the Bible and through Jesus himself, and both of which are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is first and foremost a story, a story about God and how we, those made in his image, relate to him. Bit by bit, God enters into covenant with people and reveals who he is to them. And eventually, through Abraham, who we'll hear about a little bit more in a moment, he blesses Abraham and makes him his offspring, into an ever-growing people group who will eventually be called the Israelites. 
But before this happens, they find themselves trapped in slavery in Egypt, used and abused to build Egypt's empire. And so God looks for someone again who he can partner with and encourage them to set his people free and realize the plans and purposes he has for them. That person was called Moses. And we know, many of us know the story, how God met with Moses in a burning bush, how Moses was reluctant to get going and God had to kick him up the bum and say, get on with it. We remember how reluctant Egypt was to let go of God's people. We remember the escape, the mighty escape from Egypt through the Red Sea, the freedom that they enjoyed from slavery. And then we remember their time in the wilderness, going round and round in circles, one step forward, two step back. Through all of this, we see this beautiful relationship form and develop between Moses and the God of his ancestors. We read in Exodus 33 that God would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. I love that verse. It's so beautiful, isn't it? And in Exodus 33, we get to eavesdrop on another conversation between Moses and God. Moses is asking, he's, in fact, he's pleading, he's begging God to go with the Israelites every step of the way on this arduous journey and not to abandon them despite their rebellion and waywardness. And God says, okay, I will stick by you. I am faithful, I will stick by you. And then Moses thinks, great. Then he gets a little bit bolder and he says to God, now, Show me your glory. Now, in ancient Hebrew, to speak of God's glory was to speak of his presence and beauty. Moses not only wants God to be with them, but he wants to know God for who he really is. He wants to see him and experience him in person. Now, up until this point, God had revealed himself to the people of um, Israel, to the Israelites, um, through a cloud, a pillar of cloud, like an epic smoke machine, is what I'm thinking of. An epic smoke machine and a thunderous voice. And the reason for this, as God points out to Moses, is that no one could see him and no one could see his face and live. That's how powerful and awesome God is. But then God says, I'll do you one better, Moses. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Did you hear that? God has a name. So early that next morning, Moses climbs up Mount Sinai to meet with God and then we read what John spoke to us earlier from the Bible. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, before we move on, that last bit, I know, I know, we're all a bit like, what's up with that last bit? I'm like loving it. And then there's that bit about the children and I don't get it. Um, We come into it, okay? That's going to be part of the series. Hold on in there. It's worth the wait. But this this moment in scripture, this is one of the most incredible and life-changing moments ever. And it's not just for Moses, but for all people. This is one of the few places in the Bible where God describes himself, where God says, this is what I am like. Where the God who had previously said to Moses, I am who I am. What? You can just imagine Moses going, well, that clears it up. Thanks, Lord. That makes perfect sense. Great. Well, this is the moment where the I am who I am now shows who he is, what he's about. This is God's self-disclosure to Moses and to the world. For those of us that have been in the church for a while, these few verses are like the John 3.16 of Judaism, that everyone knew them. You know, it was just like, oh yeah, John 3.16. Well, they would be like that with this passage. Yes, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. It would just trip off the tongue because it was so important, so key. And these words are known and quoted throughout the rest of the Bible. You see it referenced in the Psalms. You see it referenced in the prophets. They quote it. They allude to it. They sing it. They pray it. They even complain about it. Do you remember Jonah? Do you remember what Jonah's quibble against God was about? Do you remember? He got angry with God because he knew you're compassionate and you're gracious and you're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. Oh, but why do you have to be like that with those people? Yeah, he used it against him. (laughs) So it's quoted so many times. But most of all, these people of God, they believed it. They believed it. They believed that this was God's self-disclosure, the answer to who God is. Now, in the West, we tend to think about God in philosophical terms. And so if you ask someone to, to describe God, and maybe this went through your head when I asked you, how would you describe God? Um, you might start with the omnis. You know what I mean? God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God is omniscient, omniscient even, all-knowing. God is omnipresent everywhere at once. And the Bible would back this up as being true. Absolutely, God is all those things. But when God describes himself, that's not where he starts. When God describes himself, he starts with his name. 
And in ancient writings like the Bible, as we've heard from Kim this morning, a name was much more than just a label. It was your identity, your destiny, the truth hidden in your very being. It was your inner Johnness, your inner Carolness, or Kimness, or Ianness, or I'm just looking around the room, uh, Janineness. It was it was who you really, really are. And so I'm just going to read something. Lastly, from this. Uh, book. Um, The last section I'm going to read, it's from page 42, and it says this. One Old Testament scholar writes, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, their origin, their birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that that bearer was intended to fulfill. Names are revelatory of the nature of a person. Think of the story of Abraham. We heard about him earlier. Originally, he was just called Abram. Do you remember? But then Yahweh, the Lord, makes him a promise. I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. And then God renames him from Abraham, Abraham, sorry, to Abraham. Now, Abraham means exalted father, but Abraham means father of many nations. See what God did there? Very clever, isn't he? It's more than a new label. It's a new identity and a new destiny. And we see that continuously in the scriptures. We see Jesus doing that with his disciples. And it's not just Abraham or Abraham. Uh, Think of his son Isaac. Isaac, some of you may know, means laughter. Okay? When his mum Sarah heard that she was going to have a son in her old age, what did she do? She laughed. She laughed out loud. She found it absolutely ridiculous. So when Sarah finally gave birth to the miracle child, Abraham named him laughter. Beautiful. Or think of Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber, a euphemism for a liar and a cheat. Lovely thing to call your uh, child, isn't it? Huh? And, but his biography is exactly that, one con after another, until an odd story where he wrestles with God and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then God renames him from Jacob to Israel, which means one who struggles with God. From then on, he was a changed man. Is this coming into focus for you? Is it getting clearer? John Mark Homer says, names were way more than labels to pick up your coffee at Starbucks or Costa or any other of those retail outlets. Names were your autobiography in one word. And the word, the Lord, that we see in the passage that we've seen today, I don't know if you've noticed, but it was in capitals. In the Old Testament, have you ever noticed that sometimes when you read the scriptures, Lord is in capitals? And the reason for that is that it's a translated word from the Hebrew word, which is YHWH. 
which through translation over time has gained some vowels and become Yahweh. Okay? And we sung about that this morning. One of the songs sung Yahweh, Yahweh. And if you're keen in understanding how this came about, this book is really great at unpacking that. Um, or I can talk to you afterwards, but I cannot go into all of that detail today because way too much to cover otherwise. But come and see me afterwards if you'd like to know how that name came about. But God has a name, and that name is Yahweh. In our translation, it says Lord in capital letters. But in his book, in this book, God has a name. John Mark Comer argues that though in our Bibles, Yahweh is translated as Lord in capital letters, it can hinder how we relate to God. Why? Because the Lord isn't a name, it's a title. Like the doctor, the judge, the king. Calling God the Lord is like me calling Kate the wife. And to be fair, I have to make a confession now, um, and I, I haven't told her this, so, um, but she doesn't ever listen to my sermon, so it's fine, so she won't hear it, she's out there. Um, in my phone, I actually have Kate as wife. I felt very convicted when I read this book. And I'm going to change that and to put her actual name or something more endearing than the wife. Um, now, why would I call her that? Okay, it's a little bit weird, isn't it? Because Kate and I, we're in an intimate relationship and she is more than just a wife. She's a daughter, she's a granddaughter, she's a mother, she's a friend. What we call someone says a lot about our relationship with them. And God has a name. He wants you to know who he is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He wants intimacy with you. And Jesus took this one step further and encouraged us to call God Abba, Father, that intimate term that a young child uses for their father. You can't get much more intimate than that. And when the disciples of Jesus said to him, show us the father, God, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to them, I've been with you all of this time and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Later on, when Jesus is praying to the Father, before he gets taken away and crucified, he says to his Father, I have revealed your name to those you gave me. I have made your name known to them. Remember, name equals character, identity, the core being of someone. God is wanting a relationship with you and he enables that through Jesus who has made him known. Jesus, God's own son, God made flesh, God in person. You see, to know God, to know his name is to know God himself. It moves beyond theory and theology to intimacy from head 
to heart. To know someone is to be in relationship with them. And this is what we see throughout the Bible. God wanting to be in relationship with people. Revealing himself one bit at a time until Jesus comes, full of grace and truth, and made himself at home amongst us and revealed God's nature, his essence, his name to us fully. And so if you're willing, over the next few weeks, we're going to journey with Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai with all our questions, with all our understandings, with all our emotions, and with all our experiences. And we're going to courageously enter into that cloud and pray with Moses, show me your glory. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Yahweh, we thank you that you were pleased to reveal yourself to Moses. We thank you that you are compassionate and gracious, that you're slow to anger and you're abounding in love and faithfulness, that you're forgiving, that you're just. And we thank you for Jesus, your son, who came full of grace and truth from you to us. He made his home here and he showed us what you were like in all your fullness. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to illuminate our minds, that you'd give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, your word, a mind to understand, and a heart to receive who you are as we journey over the next few weeks. Lord, we thank you for your word, your word that says, that if we draw close to you, you will draw close to us. For you want relationship. You want intimacy with us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, would you enable that over the next few weeks as we seek you, as we seek to draw close to God, to Yahweh. Would you draw close to us? And would you reveal your glory? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.